off to rest and reflect, and now we return to the task at hand. Last time we met on topic, we finished chapter 15. And if you're new to the study, it helps to know that Revelation describes a series of visions given to John by Jesus. John is specifically instructed to record what he sees and hears for us in the form of a letter to the churches. Like the remainder of Scripture, the book of Revelation tells the consistent story of God's own mission to redeem lost sinners throughout the earth and to save us all from the twin scourge of sin and death. But in Revelation, what John's describing is the completion of God's redemptive mission as it will take place at the end of time, when evil will finally be defeated forever and those whose faith has led them to sacrifice, suffering, and death will be vindicated at last. And we are nearing the end of the story. In chapter 15, John sees another sign in heaven, monumental and astonishing. It was seven angels having the seven last plagues. And we are told that in them, the wrath of God is complete. All of the redeemed are then pictured in heaven, standing on the sea of glass that proceeds from the throne of God. They are described as being those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark. They did not take the mark of the beast, nor did they worship his image. So in heaven they play harps, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, extolling the great and marvelous works of the Lord and his just and true ways. As we looked into that issue, we found two songs of Moses in Scripture. Both involve themes of deliverance for God's people and judgment for those who have oppressed them. As we have discovered time and again, judgment and deliverance are two sides of the same coin. They are both integral parts of God's redemption, and they cannot be separated. In chapter 15, the temple in heaven was opened. and were introduced to these seven angels. They were given seven bowls, golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. He is, after all, the creator, the sustainer, the owner of the universe. His goodness and kindness have been manifest in his creation, and especially in sending his only son Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sin. But as part of his plan to redeem us and the rest of his creation, God's judgment on the forces of sin and death is an utterly inevitable consequence. So what John is describing here really is the end of an era in the history of the world. The age where sin and death have held sway over the earth will soon be over. And then we will finally see the full advent of the kingdom of God who lives forever and ever. As chapter 15 closed, we were told that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Indeed, the smoke of God's presence was so thick, we are told that no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So... The anticipation is palpable, 
as God is about to send down his final judgment on Satan and his followers. All of heaven and creation itself is now overwhelmed with an air of expectancy. Which brings us to our material for this morning, beginning in Revelation chapter 16 at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Well, the first question that comes to mind, who does this loud voice belong to? Well, we are told that it is a voice from the temple, but is that by itself enough to resolve the question? In this case, I believe the answer is yes. Once again, the word here that John uses refers to the Holy of Holies. It's where God made himself present with his people in the days of the temple and the tabernacle. And when we left off, the smoke from the glory and power of God was so thick, no one was able to enter. So if God was the only one in the temple and no one else could enter, it's reasonable to conclude that a loud voice from the temple would have to come from God himself, directly. And even if you could make a case for the announcement proceeding from some kind of angelic messenger, it would still be a command from God, even if issued indirectly. In either case, the command ultimately comes from God, and as such, it reflects his perfect decision and his perfect timing. And yes, it means God is ultimately responsible for what he sets in motion. So then, God instructs these seven angels to go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Some translations specify seven bowls. The word for bowls is rendered vials in the King James Version, but it's a word used to describe any kind of bowl or even a deep saucer that may hold a quantity of material. And while the use of bowls may seem rather modest... It's not about the size of the container so much as it is about the contents. Now, we may pause to ask what it is that God's so angry about that his wrath would fill seven bowls. The consistent answer is that God's wrath is directed at the evil that brought sin and death into the world. His wrath is directed at the evil that deceived and doomed so many souls to eternal torment. And as far as it concerns those earth dwellers who bear the mark of the beast and worship his image, it will largely be a torment of their own making and one entirely of their own choosing. Because you see, time and time again, the opportunity to repent has been offered and rejected. What more can be done? God's forbearance appears to have run its course. Now, the word for poor carries its ordinary meaning, but it's also a metaphor for anything that is bestowed or distributed broadly or generously. Thus, in this case, the idea of God's wrath poured out foreshadows a dreadful result. And recall that the number seven is the number of completion, as in the seven days of creation. So these seven bowls contain 
what may be said to be the full measure of God's wrath toward evil in the world, just as they represent God's plan to complete the redemption story and bring an end to sin and death. Finally, notice that God instructs these seven angels to go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Or as we will soon see, the plagues that are described here from these bowls will affect various parts of the earth. And they will do so in the same sequence that we saw with the trumpet judgments back in chapters 8 and 9. The initial sequence of impact will begin with those on the earth, then it will move to the sea, then to the inland waters, later to the sun, and so on. But whereas the trumpet judgments affected only a third of their respective targets, this time the impact is complete. Now, scholars note that this kind of repetitive pattern suggests that Revelation is not simply predicting a neat sequence of events that unfold in a linear fashion one after the other. Instead, there is a sense in which the book repeats a similar message of warning in multiple ways. Of course, this can make it hard for us as readers to discern where we are on God's timeline. But then again, predicting the future is not the purpose of the book. Instead, that's the sort of thing that's specifically discouraged because it tends to make us miss the point. And after all, the point is to be aware that our choices matter, that God will judge the world, and we must decide in this life, whom we will follow. In the end, there are only two options. Jesus on the one hand, and everything else on the other. The choice is clear, if not simple. And when taken seriously then, the book of Revelation will strip away any sense of security you may have. It should function as a near-death experience that will rid you of any apathy or self-assurance you may possess. Verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice there was no debate or hesitation among the angels, at least not as far as we're told. The command is given, and the angels comply, in turn, in order, methodically, one after the other. We are told that the first angel went and poured his bowl upon the earth, and as a result, a foul and loathsome sore came upon all the men who had the mark of the beast and on those who worshipped his image. Clearly, most of those men who had taken the mark and worshipped the image of the beast had done so in the belief that it would save them from suffering and privation in this life. But that reflects both the deception of the enemy and their reckless decision to focus only on the here and now. As a result, they may have avoided some persecution and they may have enjoyed some creature comforts denied to others 
but it was ultimately a bad bargain. Their fear of death and lack of faith may now produce a fate worse than death. The King James Version calls it a noisome and grievous sore. The NIV pluralizes the image reading ugly, festering sores. Yet read in the singular tense, you may appreciate the vague implication that the sore, singular, presents itself on the very part of the body where the person has taken the mark, either on the forehead or on the right hand. Now, I'm not sure if that's true. The text doesn't specifically say that. But as one scholar put it, the mark of idolatry is now matched by a sore that brings affliction. And whatever adjectives may be employed in your particular translation, the Greek word John uses for sore refers to the kind of sore that is infected and actually festering. It's a superated wound, a sore that's discharging pus. Yes, and I get it. It's gross and disgusting. But there's a very real sense in which this is what our sin and rebellion looks like in God's eyes. Of course, these sores are real, but they're also a metaphor for the effects of evil and sin in the world. In his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde portrays a man who remains young and handsome despite his descent into debauchery. But the image of the man in the portrait duly revealed all of the scars, wrinkles, and boils of his personal corruption. Perhaps here, the foul and loathsome sore that came upon these men openly reflected the depravity of their own rebellion, a rebellion most clearly illustrated by their decision to take that mark of the beast and worship his image. As is frequently the case, What appears to be God dispensing judgment is also God revealing the natural consequences of our own choices. Now, if this were the simple application of retributive justice in an eye-for-an-eye sort of way, one might actually expect that God would simply kill these unrepentant earth dwellers the same way they killed the prophets and the martyrs and God's two witnesses without mercy or pity. But that doesn't happen here, at least not yet. The sore that God inflicts on those who follow the beast may be grievous, but it's not as severe as the death the beast inflicted on believers. Instead, it's more like the sores that came upon the Egyptians before the Exodus. It presses people, even now, to repent of their pagan practices. But in discussing the spiritual implications, let's not forget the practical implication of such an event taking place worldwide. With such a universal disaster, medical supplies would almost surely be exhausted in a few days. Victims would be annoyed to distraction, and all normal patterns of activity would be adversely affected. Verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood... As of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. 
Once again, recall the parallel sequence with the trumpet judgments. First on the land, then on the sea. As we consider the way these plagues seem to cycle themselves over, notice how parts of the story are being subtly repeated and expanded, as if for emphasis. It would appear that God is incrementally trying everything at his disposal to reach lost souls and draw them to their own redemption. The price has already been paid. The cross has already been endured. All that's left is for the sinner to repent, to turn away from their sinful pride, to turn back to God in humble faith. But is it possible? In this context, one may argue that once a man takes the mark, he's beyond redemption. But we may also infer, I think, that he takes the mark because he is beyond redemption. In either case, God does not appear to have given up, even though his efforts may yield no further harvest. It is almost as if God is anticipating criticism of his judgments, so he bends over backwards to make sure every person has every opportunity to come to saving faith. Just so, we're now told that the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and when he did, the sea became blood as of a dead man. Now, there's a paradoxical aspect to this phrasing. Because in ancient times, people thought of blood as the seat of life. But here, we're clearly told that the sea became blood as of a dead man. Lifeless blood. Cold blood. In modern times, the term cold blood has come to mean ruthlessness. Or a particularly deplorable absence of conscience. You may recall that In Cold Blood was actually the title of a nonfiction book by Truman Capote detailing the gruesome murders of four members of a family on a farm outside a small town in Kansas. Of course, it may not be wise to impose modern images on ancient language, but on the other hand, these same biblical images may well be at the root of our modern idiom. Those who have taken the mark have been complicit in the suffering and death of Christians in these end times. At best, they tried to make provision for their own comfort and safety while ignoring the slaughter of innocents all around them. So God now addresses this cold-blooded attitude with a suitable response. In his wrath, the sea became blood as of a dead man literally and symbolically, a dreadful thing. The scholars debate the precise nature of the effect being described, with some suggesting that it's really nothing more than a pervasive red tide, which is responsible for causing havoc among marine life. But look, the text says the sea became blood. It does not employ language of simile, except to describe the blood itself as of a dead man. Nevertheless, this is a devastating event for mankind. Notice that as a result, every living creature in the sea died. 
Roman civilization in John's day was nothing if not a seafaring culture. The bulk of all trade and commerce were conducted on the sea. Furthermore, the fishing industry was critical to the economy, and seafood had a prominent place in the diet. All of this would suggest an epic tragedy to a first century reader. Of course, we may feel more removed from the sea these days as we are from most of the means of our own survival. But think about it. If all the plankton in the sea died, what would become of us? Scientists suggest that upwards of 98% of the world's atmospheric oxygen comes from plant life, and more than half of that comes from the sea. So experts say that the entire population of the earth will be threatened by an event like this, The loss of all marine life brings wide-scale destruction and the dismantling of the social, economic, and natural order of the planet. Now, setting aside for a moment the effects of this plague on the people of the earth, there are actually some folks who complain that this destruction of innocent sea life raises doubts about God's divine judgment. Well, fair enough. But I would urge you to be quick to admit that as mere mortals, we are in way over our heads when we try to judge our Creator. After all, the one who made the rules can change the rules, and who are we to complain? Whatever he destroys, he can create again when he makes all things new. So I see... Absolutely no justification for climbing onto our own peculiar soapbox in some futile effort to challenge the righteousness and justice of the Almighty God. Besides, any hesitation about God's goodness must also acknowledge that God's mercy is being revealed here too by the simple fact that he allows the ungodly to survive at all. Even so... The impact of these plagues serve to warn us that God's judgment is severe and his judgment will prevail. Remember, if God has spared evil men, it is not because God is indifferent to evil, but rather God has granted them another chance to repent. Verse 4. And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. As one scholar observed, the terseness of the wording here makes the universal nature of the judgment all the more powerful. And surely we can see the parallel with the trumpet judgments again. But again, this time, the devastation is complete. And again, this is not language of simile. Instead, the text clearly says the waters became blood. You may also recall the first plague in Egypt where Moses struck the waters of the Nile with his staff and the river turned to blood. But this time, the curse affects all rivers and springs of water. Clearly, God is turning up the heat on those who remain. They suffer loathsome sores. Their lives have been fundamentally disrupted from the food that they eat to the air that they breathe, and now the very water they drink has been turned to blood. And it isn't as if this is simply water tainted with blood, something that can be filtered out. It's blood. How are you going to drink that? 
And we're not even halfway through the bold judgments, and I am speechless. After all, what can you say? Except that these three bowls by themselves spell agony and doom for every person who remains on earth. Remember when we left off last time, those who had refused to worship the beast or take his mark were pictured where? In heaven. Standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, extolling God's virtues in song. And while the story is not presented in a strictly linear or chronological fashion, still it makes sense that the enemy has, by now, slaughtered all of the faithful who remained on the earth. So all who remain are earth dwellers who have elected to follow Satan, take the mark, and worship the beast. What's being described here isn't mere tribulation. This is quite clearly the wrath of God that's being dispensed. And as believers, we know that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word has given us this assurance. When we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we become God's own possession. In love, he may discipline us. In ministry, he may challenge us. And in this life, he may even call upon us to suffer for the cause of Christ, but he will not visit his wrath upon us, for we have been redeemed, we have become children of God, and God's wrath does not fall on his children. Therefore, it follows that by the time his wrath is poured out on the earth, believers will be long gone, or somehow protected and preserved in spite of these terrible plagues. One way or the other, we'll be spared the horror, even though, who knows, some may live to see it. In a way, John already has. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord. The one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. Well, in the wake of God's intolerable wrath, it is as if God himself anticipates the cries of those who would accuse him of injustice. Indeed, before the angels are finished with their bowls, we find this interlude where God's assessments and actions are affirmed as fully righteous. And notice again. The interesting idea offered here as John describes the angel of the waters. It suggests that there's an angel in charge of the waters, which would also imply that there's an angel in charge of the other elements, the land, the air, the power of fire. Now this reflects ancient Jewish beliefs about the role of angels in managing and maintaining God's creation. But in this case... Having the angel of the waters saying these things is particularly important because it's the waters of the earth that have just been destroyed. Even so, the angel of the waters says, You are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged these things. Ordinarily, such an assertion would be summarily dismissed as circular logic, right? But here the statement is a reflection of God's self-affirming character. He is justice. Therefore, all he does is by nature just. 
He is right, therefore all he does is by nature righteous. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He defines the terms. His judgments are ipso facto righteous, which is to say his judgments are by definition, by the word itself, righteous, by virtue of the fact that he is God because that's inherently part of what it means to be God. We know what justice is to the extent that we can see what God does is just. We can do justice in this life only to the extent that we can make choices that reflect the justice of God here in this world. The same is true of mercy and grace and love and faith, which is why it is so critical that each of us has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it is by his example that we discover how then we should live. As we've already observed, most of the men who had taken the mark and worshipped the image of the beast had done so in the belief that it would save them from suffering and privation in this life. If you are here today and you have not yet believed in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life, perhaps you're hesitating because you imagine that God may discipline you in love, may challenge you in ministry, or may even cause you to suffer for the cause of Christ. Maybe you believe that, at least for now, you're better off without Jesus because you fear he may cause your life to be transformed, changed. But that reflects the deception of the enemy. And it reflects a reckless decision to focus only on the here and now. Sure, as a result of your choice to let Jesus go, you may have avoided some persecution to date. Maybe you've enjoyed some self-indulgent comforts that Jesus would not endorse. But ultimately, it's a bad bargain. As we've noted already, in a sense, Robert Plant was right. Yes, there are two paths you can go by. And in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. But only if you make that change before you die. Problem is, we rarely get advance notice of when that's going to happen. And in the meantime, we get so entrenched in our habitual unbelief, our eventual condemnation becomes nearly inevitable. The lessons of Revelation are confirmed throughout Scripture. Our choices matter. God will judge the world. and We must decide in this life whom we will follow. And in the end, there are only two options. Jesus and everything else. So the choice is clear, if not simple. But remember... The choice to follow Jesus is one where not to decide is to decide not to. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray that even as believers, this book of Revelation